sitting down in a room of women, often it's a grandmother or it's an aunt, a daughter or a cousin, uh, going through that shoebox, people and women will pull out all of these medals or a bracelet or a charm or a necklace and start telling stories that come back to them. You're listening to Folktales, a show about people doing old things in new ways. Every episode, we speak with a different maker, entrepreneur, artisan, or founder, and hear about their story, their craft, and what inspires them. I'm your host, Brian Mochizuki, and our guest this week is Brooke Griffith, the designer and founder of Glenn and Effie, a jewelry studio based in Nashville. What sets Glenn and Effie apart is how Brooke's pieces incorporate centuries-old antique jewelry and artifacts to make wholly new, unique pieces that bridge the past and the present. Every guest we've met this season found their entrepreneurial spirit in a different way. Lokalani was a seasoned chef before she started making her own ice cream. Ethan screen printed blanks before deciding to make the garment himself. In Brooke's case, she had been making jewelry since grade school, and it was always in the background while she looked into other creative careers. Yeah, I'm an East Tennessee girl, Tennessee gal through and through. So I grew up in Knoxville, um, but we spent a lot of time on our family farm, Glen and Effie's farm in the summer. So it's a 300 acre farm at the base of the Appalachian Mountains in East Tennessee. And uh, it wasn't a functioning farm when I was a kid, but um, all of the family, we and we still, even to this day, gather up there all the time. So that's one of the main influences and in why I named my business after my grandparents is because they, uh, they, they played a huge role in all of our lives, but they um, instilled a lot of really wonderful values in all of us. I've always been super artistic, really creative, just a, was always a creative child, cutting up paper, making collages. Both of my my grandmother and my mom, my mom is an interior designer in, in East Tennessee. And so I grew up going to the auction houses and flea markets with her. And she would pull me around in a little red wagon and give me things to play with. But she would buy you know, a chest of drawers and it would have teeny little things inside. And I was always obsessed with teeny tiny trinkets. She always jokes and we always joke and say that it's like our therapy going and looking and it's kind of glorified treasure hunting. Um, I always said as a kid that I wanted to be the female version of Indiana Jones. And so I think I've kind of done that right now. <laughs> so the, the fabulous version of Indiana Jones and finding treasures and, uh, and making them new and fun. I would go into my dad's garage and uh, he would give me some empty tackle boxes and we'd organize some beads and put them in there. But no, I, I actually made jewelry in elementary school and sold it to my uh, to my classmates, which was really, really funny to look back because I'd totally forgotten about it until a childhood friend of mine brought it up recently. She's like, you realize you've been doing this for a while. It's like, oh, yeah, I've, I completely forgot about that. So I went to Belmont. So I've been here for – I've been in Nashville for about 12 years. Yeah, 12 years now. Um, but I went to Belmont as a studio art major on an art scholarship. Eventually changed around into the BFA and ended up graduating with uh, a degree in art education. What was sort of the inflection point from being an artist to art education? I, I originally, coming out of high school, I wanted to be a portrait artist and decided, I was like, I don't know if I, if I like being cooped up in a studio all day and just being with me and myself. And I, I'm an introvert, but I wanted to get out there and meet people and see people and do other things aside from just being alone. 
But I also, at the end of the day, my parents, they're like, you need, you need to have a fallback degree. You need to to be able to have something that if this whole artist thing doesn't work out, you can have a steady job. So the idea was I would, I would be an art teacher if, if nothing else worked. I actually started Glenn and Effie when I was in college. So I've been doing this for about nine years, eight or nine years, and it's evolved. It's definitely evolved since then. Um, and when I was in college, I, was working a desk job and was really, really bored and needed something to do with my hands. And so I would answer phones and make jewelry and kind of decided to see if I could kind of wheel and deal it around in town um, to see if anyone would want to buy it or if they would want to sell it. Um, So that's kind of how that started. I uh, put off graduation a little bit to work for a bigger fashion company in Philadelphia. So delayed that, thought that I would fully come back, get my degree, move back to New York, um, and that didn't happen, But which was devastating at the time. And since then, or after that, I uh, ended up working for Cheekwood, which is the museum on the west side of town, and oversaw all of their education and outreach there. And then from there, I went into the school system and taught art for a little bit, very briefly. But through all of that, I've always run Glenn and Effie on the side. Um, And it's definitely evolved and changed through all of those different phases. Uh, But since then, I've been doing this full time for about three years now. What was that leap like three years ago? It was terrifying. (laughs) I got to the point where I was was teaching art and it just was not for me. It... um, it was not my calling in life. <laughs> and I, I I got to the point where I knew and I realized that if this was something that I wanted to do, I would need to do it now. And for me, at the end of the day, I the thing that would have killed me the most would be to always look back and wonder what if. So it was a huge, a hugely terrifying jump. How has the concept changed over time since you were in college to to now? It's changed massively. Um, When I started out and I told my parents that I wanted to do it, they lent me $1,000 to buy different pieces and inventory um, as long as I paid it back in a year. (laughs) So I couldn't afford much, um, and I would go to the Nashville flea market and on Saturdays or before class and and sort through and sift through just the little pieces that I could find. So uh, starting out, all of the pieces were, they they weren't as old as as the heirlooms that we find today um, and work with today, but they were mostly from like the 1930s, 1950s, weren't as fine jewelry and they, we, I didn't work with fine jewelry really because I couldn't afford it. Um, but over time, the, the brand and the jewelry has definitely streamlined into something that's very classic and modern and truly an heirloom that will be relevant and timeless in the future as it was when it was originally made. What did your education look like from a from a jewelry making perspective? Did, were you totally self-taught? As starting out, definitely. Learned how to solder, taught myself how to solder. But I also went to a jewelry school in town. So one of the biggest uh, jewelry schools is actually in Arrington, 
Um, so not that far from here. And the guy who runs that, he trains some of Tiffany's jewelers. And so I went through one of their courses and was traditionally trained on a bench. Um, but even still, a lot of that knowledge and work that goes into hand building like a fine diamond ring doesn't apply to what we do. Um, so I've learned from other jewelers and and sat down with them and and kind of picked their brains on how to work with all of these antique pieces because everything is truly a different puzzle to figure out. The antique piece seems to very much be at the forefront and and it feels like every piece that we've that I've seen in the shop or that 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 we've like we see on Instagram like has like a very mm-hmm. unique story to it. How does that I guess, where does that process start from from sort of a sourcing perspective? So we've, I, I love any and all jewelry and I've narrowed everything down to, we only source pieces from the 1800s, which is the Victorian era or earlier the Georgian era. So like the 1700s and the 1920s. So we have people who I've worked with and just through, I've bought from for years who have connected me with people internationally, who have connected with me with other people across the States. And so What happens when, um, if we have a client who's looking for something specific, we just kind of put out an all call to the people who find heirlooms for us. So sometimes we have people who go to Italy or they'll go to France and they'll find different pieces and they'll take a picture and and email it to us and we'll circle and say, you know, we'll take this, this and this. So Mm. we have pieces that come to us from everywhere. Which is really exciting. Cool. And when it's something that is that is not commissioned, but is something that you're wanting to sort of create, mm-hmm. how does how does that creative process start for you? The creative process really starts with the piece itself, with the jewelry, is what we're able to find and what works, you know, trying to decide what chain fits best with that piece. Um, it's kind of like putting together a puzzle, which is really, really fun. Yeah, and I, there was something that um we bought around the holidays that was it was it were the sort of art deco earrings mm-hmm. um and it i think the glass was all reclaimed from like an old factory or something like that like what's i, I i'm just amazed at that that there's even like a ability to find something like that mm-hmm. let alone be able to like turn it into a new product yeah a lot of the people who source for us are kind of a modern day traveling gypsies. They'll they'll go into all of these abandoned warehouses or massive estates that are closing down. And they're the ones who are the true treasure hunters that find pieces for us. But the glass pieces that you're talking about, they came out of an abandoned factory in Europe. And so when World War II happened, uh, most of the factories were shut down and the contents were put into storage so that they could use those spaces for wartime efforts. Um, and those glass pieces were just totally forgotten about until like five or six years ago, which is really wonderful and beautiful. I mean, there's obviously a finite amount of treasures like this from the eras that you're talking Mm -hmm. about. Um, I guess, is there any concern that like in 10 years, you're not going to be able to have the supply? Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) This, what we do now is definitely very, it's very bespoke. It's very niche. And so for the last seven years, I've set aside pieces that I love way too much to let go or to sell. And I think they're way too cool. Um, but we're actually, for the last three years, we've been working on manufacturing these pieces into designs that we can reproduce. So we're, we've been working with some 3D digital scanners to digitally scan all of, um, to capture all of like the unique engravings and the different uh 
I guess, unique qualities of every single piece to manipulate that digitally so that we can 3D print it and cast it into a new design. These pieces are definitely, they're getting harder and harder to find. Um, but that's that's kind of the end goal mm. is to, to re- recreate and reproduce these pieces to the same quality to where they'll be, they'll still be around over a hundred years later. Everyone always says that like, whether it's like tailoring or leather work or, you know, that like you can't reproduce the quality of, of things from the 18th century and 19th mm-hmm. century. Is is that um, is that the same case of jewelry? It's really hard. It's a lot of jewelry making it is a dying craft. And we I've been looking for a hand engraver to hand engrave several pieces and, and do some work with us um, for a long time. And jewelry, I guess the craft of, of bench making or working on a jewelry bench is, I mean, it's, it's been a job that has been passed down from generation to generation. That's why there's a lot of fifth, sixth generation jewelers is that you learn from sitting next to someone and, uh, learning their craft and and them teaching you those kind of little tricks of the trade but if if you don't have anyone to pass that down to it's kind of a lost art and that's what it's coming down to what sparks a new idea for you uh well coming from a background of art i art definitely inspires me uh looking at old paintings and and seeing some of the even how the artist painted jewelry and portraits. A lot of things inspire me, but definitely art is at the top of the list for sure. And what about the the um, Victorian and Georgian era in particular uh, resonates with you? There's just so much detail, a lot of hand engraving. And most of the pieces that we work with and find, they were considered costume jewelry in their time. They weren't fine, but they, um, and a lot of the pieces had function too. Uh, men's pocket watch winding keys were, had, citrines set in them um, and they were hand engraved everything had kind of the utmost attention to detail put into it down to the design the craft function and personalization of it all so these are all from the 1920s the glenn and effie studio takes up a couple of rooms on the first floor of brooks house which is fittingly a well-restored 1940s cottage you can see photos of our studio tour on instagram just search for folktales podcast In one room, Brooke sketches her designs, and next door she has her soldering iron, workbench, and a few large organizers sorted by era, style, and material. When we uh, get pieces in, we kind of will clean them, we'll assess what needs to be done, we'll take the backs off, um, and we'll kind of do everything in waves or in batches. So it's, it's not only a conversion process, but it's also a restoration process. So some things can be really corroded and need a lot of cleaning, or um, some things just honestly just need a change. So it all depends. But we go through phases of cleaning a piece, fixing it if it needs, if it needs repair, um, taking it apart, and then buffing it out, reassembling. So usually we can make, if, if we're running uh, at a really fast pace for the holidays, for example, we can make about 50 pieces in a week. And how much of that work, I guess, happens in your, so we're in your home studio right now, how mm-hmm. much of it happens here versus somewhere else. It all happens here. Um, the only the only work that happens offsite is for our custom fine jewelry. So we have a lot of customers and clients that'll bring us a shoebox of heirlooms and we get to sift through it all. And um, sometimes someone will come to us with a 
diamond brooch that was their grandmother's. And they're like, I'm never going to wear this brooch, but we will unset the diamonds and sketch and talk through a design. Um, and we work with 3D digital renderers and casters to um, render a design that's been put on paper. And then our casters will cast and set. And so that's done outside of the studio. That's an incredible amount of trust, I feel like, that someone puts in you. With yeah. The, literally the family heirlooms. It's not lost on me. That's for sure. It's a lot of trust, but it's also the greatest honor. Uh, and it's the favorite part. It's the most favorite part about what I do. Um, sitting down in a room of women, often it's a grandmother or it's an aunt, a daughter or a cousin. Uh, going through that shoebox, people and women will pull out all of these medals or a bracelet or a charm or a necklace and start telling stories that come back to them um, over their childhood or over their whole life or stories that were passed down to them. And it's witnessing family lineage and stories being passed down from generation to generation in that room has and always will be the greatest honor of mine. When we decide to move forward with a design and um, create something that's really special in a new light, in a new setting, um, is wonderful. <laughs> is there a, a favorite piece you've done recently that, that that comes to mind? I have several favorites, some for design wise, others for just the sake of the family story. Um, we've had a mom and daughter who brought us a broken strand of pearls. And I didn't come from, you know, a family where I inherited a ton of gems. Um, my grandparents were farmers and we always say and tell our clients that it doesn't matter what you bring to the table. If we can work with it, we'll be more than happy to transform it for you. Um, but we had a mom and daughter that brought us a broken strand of pearls and they weren't real pearls. They were fake pearls, but they were the pearls that they always remembered their mother and their grandmother wearing. They were caked in makeup because she wore a lot of makeup. They smelled like hairspray. They had hairspray coated all over them. So we cleaned them up um, and we took every single pearl off and we were able to make a necklace, earrings, and um, different pieces for about eight women in the family after her passing. So when they all went to the funeral, they gifted all of those individual pieces to the women. So they all had a piece of their grandmother, which those pearls to anyone and to any other jeweler really um, didn't mean much. They probably wouldn't have worked with them. Uh, but the sentiment and the story behind those pieces, behind the pieces that we restore for that we put out in the world and the pieces that our clients bring us, the story is everything. And it means everything to uh, the people that received them too. At what point did you decide this was this was maybe more than just commissions or working kind of with with like what was coming to you and also about something that you were going to be proactively sort of putting out in the world? Well, like I said, art is like a huge influence to me. I the ring that I'm wearing right now that we're getting ready to put out is um, inspired from an old Roman ring that's actually in the Met. Uh, but that whole creative process of of making heirlooms and I mean, that's that's I guess kind of how that started is, you know, at the end of the day, what we do and what we sell jewelry is just jewelry. It doesn't save lives. It doesn't, um, you know, truly like benefit anyone uh, physically or emotionally. But 
a piece of jewelry really has the ability to carry on stories and it's a statement piece. You can wear a statement piece or it can be something subtle. It's a conversation. Especially as you're looking at old pieces and either preserving them or reinterpreting them and then thinking about sort of things that you're making more from from scratch, what's important for you to preserve from the old and what's important for you in terms of putting your own your own spin on something? Um, well, I guess in everything that we make, quality is always at the forefront of everything. Um, these, these heirlooms that are 100 years old, they are around 100 years later because they were well-made and thought and intention was put into that design and into that piece. Um, so that's always the number one thing that I try and prioritize in all that we do and every piece that we make. Aside from design, um, or I guess going into design or thinking about the design aesthetically, my goal is to always create something that will be just as timeless in the future as it was when it was worn. Um, and sometimes that means you know, even if we create something that's a little more funky or a little bit more bold, uh, it still has a kind of a sleek and classic spin to it. So turning from being an artist to being an entrepreneur, how has that sort of, for lack of a better word, how is that, that education of, of becoming an entrepreneur and you employ people now, like mm-hmm. how does, how does, how has that been for you? It's always an education. <laughs> it's always, it's really hard. Um, I, I think any entrepreneur will say that, but it having a, a creative brain and trying to make something happen and, and work doesn't always aren't always the best mixes. Um, but it's always a learning process. And I think that if you're doing it right, you will always be learning. Um, there's been a lot of things in business that have come up even in the last year was I kind of sat back and thought, man, I thought I already learned this lesson, <laughs> but it just kind of came back around in a, in a bigger way um, and in a different way. Uh, but I think as any entrepreneur, as any entrepreneur would probably say, you have to embrace everything as a learning lesson. And it's been a lot of hard learning lessons and being the bookkeeper and being and running payroll and also making the jewelry and coming up with designs. Um, you have to embrace a lot of the not fun things in order to do the things that you really love. I, I've always seen us and Glenn and Effie being a brand that pays attention to details and how the business has grown and started. Um, and I guess gotten it up until this point is from taking the slow approach and we don't sink a lot of money in, in marketing and digital marketing. Uh, we use that to invest back into our customers and clients who shop with us repeatedly month after month. Um, until we can get some manufactured pieces in hand, you know, we intend on still on keeping that slow approach. And even when we do have those manufactured pieces in hand, it will still be, um, I will, I always want this business to feel small and to feel like you're talking with your best friend or you're talking with your family. Is the goal to be producing five or 10 times the amount of, of 
uh, sort of manufactured pieces that, that you're doing now? Everything that we make now, so pretty much 90% of our pieces are one of a kind, which, like I said before, it's not a sustainable business model. Um, but the idea is that we totally flip that on its head to what we what we offer as one of a kind is only 10% of our offering and everything else would be a manufactured piece that is inspired from um, all of these one-of-a-kind heirlooms. How we're going to approach manufacturing is we're going to be releasing things in limited editions. So once we make 500 or 100 of those pieces, we're not going to make any more. It'll go into a vault or we'll put it in an archive. Um, but I think that, I think, I've, I guess I've never, I've never really been someone who wants to have or wear the latest trend. <laughs> I've never been kind of a, a trend follower just because everybody else has it. But when you put a story and association behind something and when it's something that truly and really no one else will have or not that many people will have, it just makes it that, that much more special and unique. You know, we don't want to be, I don't want us to be a huge global brand. Um, uh, creating... Creating these like small one of a kind bespoke pieces is uh, the appeal, and that's that's why people love us. People love something that is one of a kind. They love something that is unique, um, and I, I want to keep it that way. There's a certain approachability to your work too, which is that from a price point standpoint, like you can go into your shop and there's pieces for thirty five dollars, and then there's obviously much much nicer pieces. Well, I've I've always wanted to be approachable. Again, my grandparents and our family, you know, we didn't come from tons and tons of money where you can just casually throw down five thousand dollars on a, a very fine ring. Um, and I've always wanted to be accessible. You know, a lot of our customers and clients will save up their money to buy one necklace. And we have other clients who might buy five at once. Um, I've always wanted this business to be approachable from a design perspective, but also from a financial perspective. And that's, and moving forward with our manufactured pieces, we're going to have a sector that goes into the luxury world, which is your fine gold, precious metals, precious stones. Um, But I, I also hope that we can create uh, an elevated costume piece that will not just be something that turns your arm green or falls apart um, in a matter of months, but will still be here over a hundred years later, just like all of the pieces that we work with. How has the um, the uh, is, is, is it, I guess, is it your first shop, the one in Mayhoe Street, or have you had a retail space before that? We have not had a brick and mortar before. Actually, most of our clients and customers are all over the country. Um, so every month we release about 40 to 50 new pieces online and they go, um, to the Southeast, to the West coast, to New York, they go here, there, and everywhere. We even have, we ship internationally and we have some clients that buy from us overseas too. Um, but the, the space at the May Hosiery co-op is our first kind of forward facing little brick and mortar. And how has that been for you? It's been great. It's, um, we, anytime we've, we've always done pop-ups and residencies, but anytime we set up for an extended period of time, our, our clients and customers come and they come and visit us even from out of state. Uh, but especially this, this past holiday season, I think a lot of our, our wonderful customers sent their husbands to us last minute. So having, having a, a physical space with actual hours, 
um, has been wonderful for people who do want to make maybe a longer trek from Chicago or from Kentucky or Alabama. Um, but it's been it's been a, a really wonderful way to kind of physically manifest and put something forth that is another extension and representation of what we do and what we're trying to do online. Being rooted now in Nashville, how has that influenced the the growth of the business? Oh, massively. We I used to I used to travel um, a lot and do a lot of different pop-ups and events, but as Nashville has grown, a lot of our customers and clients are kind of coming to us, which is really great. We, again, we have people who are constantly visiting, visiting the city and constantly moving here. Um, but now, you know, it's, it's easier to justify having a brick and mortar space for people to come and visit us. So choosing to stay in Nashville, it's good from that perspective that people are, are coming to see us, but as a Tennessee gal through and through, um, I've always wanted to put roots here. And are there any things about Glen and Effie that you think is particularly Southern? I, I would hope that the way, probably the way that we approach our customers and clients, um, we, we try and write a thank you card with every single online order that goes out. And the Southern hospitality that I was raised in and grew up with, I hope to extend to our customers, even digitally online. And we're trying to figure out ways to do that. And what are, what are some, um, I guess, what are some dreams that you have for, for the business? I would love to be able to grow to the point to where we're able to help other people. Um, we're able to provide more jobs for others, but also give back to our community. I believe that to whom much is given, much is also expected in return. And having the opportunity to financially invest and spiritually and emotionally invest back into the community if we're able to grow to a certain point would be a big dream of mine. You can see photos from this episode on Instagram. Just search for Folktales Podcast. To learn more about Glenn and Effie, find them on Instagram or visit Glenn and Effie. That's Glenn with one N and Effie with two Fs. For the next couple months, we'll be taking a break as we record the rest of season one. Thank you for listening. And if you've enjoyed these first five episodes, please share them, subscribe, and leave us a rating. Thank you, and we'll see you soon.